Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. David Matsumoto, professor of psychology at San Francisco State University. Dr. Matsumoto, how are you? I am wonderful. Thank you for allowing me to be on your program. Well, thank thank you very much. It's 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 an honor to talk to you. I, I'm not sure if you listened to a previous episode, but I, I've mentioned you at least once, maybe on two different episodes, about how I, I referenced your your paper, actually the paper we're going to discuss today, and and a previous paper. So it's 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 a real thrill. That's the whole purpose of this show is to reach out to citations who who are actually people. <laughs> so it's nice it's nice to it's nice to to hear your voice and and uh it's actually a real thrill because I have I've referenced you in uh in a paper and 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 your work with emotions is something that I'm 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 quite interested in. And uh I'm cur- I'm curious how you how do you feel about being asked a question about a study you did in 2002? Well, I that's a really great question because First of all, I had to overcome the shock of somebody actually remember, thinking that that's the one they wanted to ask about of all the <laughs> of all the things that I've published. Um, and 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 because it's 2002, as you mentioned, you know, and and as you know, with the publication lags and all that stuff, that's a that's a study that was that I probably wrote up. I mean, 20 years ago, right, or even more. And uh, I had to. Refresh my memory. I don't. In fact, I still don't think if I, I remember everything about it. So, but uh, it's cool. It's cool. It's got as you as as you intimate through your previous podcast and your website. Um, it's got its own history and all kinds of other things going on. So, um, yeah, cool. We'll go wherever you want to go. All right. Well, the the article that's going to be the basis of today's episode is called "American Japanese Cultural Differences in Judgments of Emotional Expressions." of different intensities. I guess I can give you my perspective why I found this paper interesting. I, I'm dealing with language learning anxiety uh-huh. and silence uh, with language teachers in Japan. Uh-huh. And the issue that I that I found is that there is this issue of language learning anxiety in the classroom. Mm. And foreign teachers um, or non-native Japanese teachers sometimes are unaware of why students are silent. Are silent. Uh-huh. And they're and one of the reasons they're silent is because they're nervous. Sure. And what I found is one of one of the the main impediments to to teachers is that not only do teachers not know why students are silent, but actually the facial expressions are hard to read. Sure. And and I found that Japanese do not display, as you mentioned, um, the negative facial expressions to maybe people of higher status, a you know, aka a, a teacher. Yes. So that, from from my perspective, this is why I'm really interested in this, especially for someone. I've lived in Japan for a few years now, and my wife's Japanese. I'm more aware of the cultural differences, but for someone who's a new teacher in Japan, I could see that it's a it's a big problem. It's almost like a poker face. Sure. Um, it's hard to tell exactly what the the Japanese students are are are, are thinking and and why they're they're silent. So that's why I'm really really interested in in, in your work, especially comparing the Americans and the Japanese. Yeah, I can I can certainly see that that difference. Um, there's a major expressive difference in that particular context, as as you're mentioning. And um, uh, you know, I teach here in the United States, and it's and it's very different. People are very expressive, as, as they often are in many different contexts here. And um, you know, well, I, but there's a huge range, right? There's a range of people who are are very reserved as well, and and but a lot of people who are who are not. But yes, I think you're probably you're right that in the on the whole, in in Japan and many other countries like that, there are those kinds of expressive differences in such situations or contexts like the the classroom, especially perhaps maybe even more so with a with a uh, non Japanese teacher. Right. All right. Well, before we get into the article, if people want to read the article before we get into the episode, I guess you can push pause. I found this article on on Google Scholar, and I it's I think it's available on your website as well. Um, again, it's called American-Japanese Cultural Differences in Judgments of Emotional Expressions of Different Intensities. And if you like this article, I actually would recommend people go back again to 1991, another great article you wrote, which is Cultural Influences on Facial Expressions of Emotion. Um, now, I didn't specifically tell you we were going to talk about that, but I, I would say that this paper you wrote in 1991 is really the framework of everything that you did in 2002. Now, I don't again, I don't know when that data collection was. Right. 
but it seems like you were thinking about these terms of cultural display rules, individualism versus uh, collectivism, in-group, out-groups, power distance. These are all the... These are all the, the the vocabulary items you were using in, in 1991. So it seems like you were you were thinking about this for a long time. Well, I think that's true on a, on a broad scale, but not necessarily to the specificity that occurred in this particular study. You know, because as as you know, and as I I've seen in your other podcasts and what you write about your your podcast, you know, there's 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 like you say, there's a story behind every citation. And with a story comes a history, and as as you know, we've been we've been coming towards today's discussion between you and me. I was starting to think about or try to remember where where this all came from because I remember when I looked back into this paper, I I then remember the previous paper from which this one was was immediately born, which actually is a 1999 paper. But then before that, there's a 95 one. And then before that, there's a 92 one. Before that, there's a 91 that you're probably talking about. And then before that, that's the, there's the 89 one. And then before that, there's an 87 one by, by Ekman and Group. And so every and, – and before that, there's the others as well. And um, I, think, I think what this got me thinking about was how this – there's essentially a lineage, right, of, of, a, of a thought – so going directly back to your question, yeah, I think in terms of broad strokes, I was I, I was definitely thinking about those cultural dimensions to kind of explain these differences that we can observe either in the expression or perception of emotions. But of course, as time goes by, one's as 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 we are all researchers, one's thinking sharpens about how to how to explore that and how to how to get that how to get that in a study. And in fact, since that, I, I you know I think that I think about it differently now. And so I think it, it, there's it, there's a this, there's a single point on a continuum, and that's what you're referring to. Well, the the fact you went back in time, I actually wouldn't mind going back through your bio before we get into the paper. I like to 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 establish uh, researchers' backgrounds. Yours is quite an interesting history. Now, if I have any of this information wrong, please please correct me. I got some of this from Wikipedia, and some of this from your LinkedIn. So I'm sure the LinkedIn stuff is, is guaranteed true. Um, so from your Wikipedia page, it says you were, you were born and raised in Hawaii. Now, is that true? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Honolulu. All right, ding. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's true. Okay. And then you, uh, if you don't mind my asking, are, are both your parents, uh, Japanese? Both my parents, they're, they're both gone now, but yes, both of them are, uh, Nikkei, Nisei. So second generation Japanese, both of their parents came from Japan in the late 1800s. In the late 1800s? Yes. Why did they Why did they immigrate in the late 1800s? Oh well, my my so my grandparents right came in the late 1800s as part of the um, you, you know the big, big emigration from Japan to the west coast of the United States and Hawaii and Brazil uh, mm -hmm. as part of the the well, it wasn't a treaty it was an agreement between the United States and Japan for laborers essentially okay. after the Meiji Restoration and so many many. Um, Japanese from Japan, especially the southern areas of Japan, from Kyushu and south from Hiroshima, uh, that area, you know, Yamaguchi, that area. Uh, there were a lot of people who emigrated for work. And so, and the United States were looking for workers, especially for the plantations and what that in Hawaii and, and the West Coast. And, you know, the, I believe the largest concentration of Japanese outside of Japan is in Sao Paulo, Brazil. So it was part of that big immigration back in late late 1800s, and the, my grandparents came um, to Hawaii in the late 1800s. They were working in the um, in the plantations there, and then my parents were born in the 1919, to be exact, in in, mm -hmm. in Hawaii. My mother was born in Maui, and my father was born in uh, the Big Island of Hawaii. Wow! So. So what, your grandparents, where, where in Japan are they from? So my father's side is from Kumamoto. No way. My wife is from yeah, Kumamoto. Uh, you're, you're in Kyushu, right? Yeah, I live in Fukuoka. Yeah, and I've been to Fukuoka many times for judo, actually. Really? Yeah. Wow. And my mother's side is from Yamaguchi. So that's that's the, 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 the furthest tip of Kyushu in the south. Of Honshu. Correct? Of Honshu. 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 Yeah. Wow. Okay, so your, your parents, did they... Were they, 
what, what was it like with, with them? Were, were, were they fluent in Japanese? Well, um, yeah, well, see, that's a really interesting thing because um, um, they, they were fluent in Japanese when they talked to their parents. But mm. they spoke to us all, all, only in English. And I grew up with wow. two brothers, and I, we all grew up speaking only English. Mm. And um, like, like I think most Japanese-American families at the time, and now, um, and and uh, you know, but where when you back in the day, you know, I was born in the 1959, and my bro- I have two older brothers, and growing up in Hawaii at that time, there we were all in Hawaii. The Japanese population was the largest ethnic group there, and so you know, it, while you speak English, you learn a lot of Japanese words, right, and Japanese pronunciations of things, etc., and, and whatnot. And there are very many cultural artifacts, both in behavior and, and and phrases that we all grew up with. So even though our primary language is and was English, you know, we have these Japanese sounds here and there. And I'll give you an interesting language um, thing, you know, because you're you're the language expert and I'm not. But, you, um, you know, so all of myself, my brothers, my siblings and I and all of my cousins and all of the grandkids, of course, we used to spend time on in the summers with my grandparents who could, who we couldn't communicate with, right? Because they only spoke Japanese, mm. only spoke English. And so one of the things I did was when I went to university, I went to the university at the University of Michigan, and I, I double majored in psychology and Japanese, and that's another story. But anyway, I majored in Japanese. And one of the reasons why, uh, one of my motivations was so that, because I, I wanted to talk with my grandmother. Mm. And um, after, you know, I, then I, I, I took first year Japanese and then second year Japanese, and then I was doing well in that. So I took third year intensive over the summer between my second and third years of, of, of university. So then one day I came, I think in my third year or, or in between third and fourth year, I, I came back to Hawaii and there came the big day that I was going to talk to my, my grandmother in, in in Japanese on the phone, you know, and there she is. She's talking with my mom. And then my mom says to her, oh, you know, David, like to talk to you. And so then I got on the phone and I spoke to her and she spoke back to me and I couldn't understand a word she was saying. And it, was, <laughs> it was the Kumamoto Ben? Uh, no, it was Yamaguchi Ben of a... Yamaguchi Ben, ago. okay. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, it really stuck in my mind that the culture and the language and the customs of the time, right, of the time mm-hmm. that... the they immigrated is what they know and that's what they did and spoke well mm. while languages as you know evolve right over time and so i was learning standard japanese in the late 1970s and mm. that was not what she was speaking you know so <laughs> it was quite a quite of a quite a little disappointment when i had that discussion but then it was it was you know it's kind of interesting to think about that right yeah that's I mean, and, and and the other side is just Japanese. I I, I think it's such a difficult language, um, so I, I get frustrated at, at that myself living here um, because so, sometimes I can't understand somebody, and I, I I have to deal with I have to deal with that myself my 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 own sort of issues. But you're right; it's it's an evolving language, and it, it's hard to to pick up on all the idioms or or any of the phrases or especially the speed. For me, uh, sorry, I I I mixed up your your parents, but. You said your grandfather was from Kumamoto. I, I have I have problems with the Kumamoto band. Oh yeah, just because sure. of the, the the speed of, the speed of it and how you know connected the the words are. Yeah. So, but by, by the end of your uh, your time at Michigan, what what was your fluency level in Japanese in, of standard Japanese? I could um, I could have a everyday conversation, um, talking with people. Um, was not very technical, you know. I, I even then and well then I could probably read a paper better than I do now because I had, you know, we all had to learn our kanji then, but um, I could have a, a general conversation with people. Not, you know, I couldn't do anything with, with technical words. I couldn't speak psychology for definitely mm. just having everyday conversations, I, you know, be perfectly fine. And, and, the, and as you know, from my bio, I, I also do a lot of judo. And so between going to Japan for judo and, and then doing cross-cultural research, you know, and, and um, you know, my wife is Japanese. I mean, spending all this time in Japan and speaking with Japanese people and my Jap- my judo instructors were Japanese also. I mean, you know, there's a lot of practice time and practice time is good for learning a language. 
Why, why did you choose the University of Michigan? seems like a, a long way away from Hawaii. Was that, on, was that one of the reasons <laughs> you wanted to get away from home? Yeah, I think that, you know what? I don't remember exactly, but I think I, that's exactly what it was because I, that was the farthest school away from home I got. I, I, you know, of course, it's a great place, right? It's a great city. Mm -hmm. But um, I think one of the m motivations was for me to get away. And boy, did I get away. Boy, boy that was different. I remember the first day it snowed there. It, it's... You know, coming from Hawaii, who had never seen snow, it's quite an interesting thing to see snow the first time. <laughs> and then, and then after after Michigan, you you go back to the warmer weather of Berkeley. Yeah, is it is that you kind of going halfway back towards home, or was it because Berkeley is one of the the, the better psych, psychology schools uh, in the country? Uh, you know what? I mean, this is kind of related to one of the questions you had suggested that we might be talking about, which is. Um, you know, uh, what was my motivations to do various kinds of things and whatnot. And um, despite despite what most people think about, well, me anyway, who, who know me, there was no master plan of whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, you're looking at your bio, it looks like there's a master plan oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I know. In hindsight. Oh, yeah, I know. And then like, <laughs> what's the master plan? Yeah, there's no master plan. So I got into Berkeley. To tell you the truth, when I was in Michigan, I knew I, I, knew I, was, I was, I wanted to go to grad school in psychology. And I thought I wanted to be a clinician. So then I applied to clinical psych grad school. And Berkeley happened to be a, an early ad, admission um, application. So I applied there. Okay. And then my, and my, my advisor basically convinced me to not do that. And then everywhere else I got into, I got into social psych, which was not, you know, not a clinical degree. And I got into the other schools. But then I decided to become a clinician anyway. And so I went to Berkeley, not because of Berkeley or not because it was halfway back to home or because it was warmer. It was because it was a clinical school. Mm. And so, so here I, so I came to the Bay Area, um, 1981, came to the Bay Area because, uh, because I wanted to go to clinical school. And you finished your master's in 83, your PhD in 86. Yes. Um, yes. The, the, there weren't any, there weren't any delays with that. That's, that's pretty impressive. Was there was there any point in time where you were were struggling with that, and you thought you might, you know, some some people, you know, don't finish it that fast. Yeah. Was, was it was it was it difficult to sort of stay on on target like that? Well, so here's, here's was, I have two two things about that. Number number one, I did have difficulty in the sense that I decided not to be a clinician. When you're mm -hmm. in the middle of clinical work, and you know, I had done my coursework, my three years of coursework, I passed my quals. I was well on my way to finishing my dissertation research and I had to do my internship. And what, just when I was about to start my internship, I decided I don't want to do clinical work. Mm -hmm. To tell you the truth, I'm glad I, if I was going to do, decide that, I'm glad I decided that before I started it, right? But I decided I decided I, I did that clinical work was not for me. And I then got out of my clinic, my internship. And then finished my degree with my because you don't need a degree in psychology for with a with an internship, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, making that decision was tough, and you know, moving on was tough. On, on the other hand, so, but I, on the other hand, I didn't have the kinds of delays or distractions. I think that I think that you were into, um, suggesting in your in your question, like I see a lot of people do. And that's kind of related to my my previous thing about how I got to where I am and with all these, you know, I got a lot of articles and books and all this stuff. And, you know, all of, I, again, it's no master plan. I think it's all because I did judo. To tell you the truth, it's it's judo. I've done it since I was seven. I, I do it now. Um, you know, I, it's been a part of my life for 53 years. And it what what you know one thing it does it regulates your daily life and gives you a lot of discipline and, and work ethic, and well, to, to tell you the truth, it, just getting through grad school, which was your original question, was essentially me just being able to just stick with the grindstone every day, and that's kind of I still do that, you know, I I still do that every day right now. Well, it said, uh, I think this is from your LinkedIn. It said that you started the East Bay Judo Institute in 1984 that's that's right after you finish your masters now what what is the east bay judo institute well so east east bay judo institute is the name of my dojo uh the dojo that i founded now but back in 84 i actually joined the it, you, we used to be called the berkeley judo club and i joined the berkeley judo club berkeley judo club was instructor less at the time i just retired mm -hmm. from comp judo competition 
And they asked me to come and teach judo. And I said, okay. And so I started doing that when I was in grad school and I took it over. I took over the dojo, you know, and, and um, in, I, we were in Berkeley, California until 1991, at which point we moved to a city called El Cerrito in California, which is near, nearby Berkeley. And we, when we moved, we changed the name to East Bay Judo Institute. So it's a continuation of the Berkeley Judo Club, which I took over in 1984. And then you were the, this is incredible. You were the Olympic coach for the Atlanta Olympics? Yeah. So there's no. For the U.S. team? Yeah. I, w I became a, um, a national coach for USA Judo in 1989. And I became um, uh, part of the national coaching staff in 1992. And 93, I became chairman of the national coaching staff. And 96, I was part of the, the coaching staff that went to the, uh, the Atlantic Olympic Games, the Atlanta Olympic Games. But because I was the head of the chairman, I was the chairman of the national coaching committee. Um, you know, that person is typically thought of as the head coach. And so I was one of the four that went to Atlanta. And then I was um, the head of the international competition and training for USA Judo when we went to Sydney. And then after that, I, I became a, an official in the International Judo Federation. So I was in Athens and London for the International Judo Federation. And my daughter was a uh, competitor in the Beijing Olympic Games in 2008. And then I had a couple of qualifiers in London, 2012. And then I, and then I stopped um, coaching judo at that level uh, because it's, it's like a full-time job. You know, and all of that for, for most of us, in the United States, that's that's a volunteer position, right? It's 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 there's no pay. It's a lot of it's a lot of time and effort and travel, and um, and uh, you know being at that that level of competition, it's 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 just a lot of work. Anyway, so I was done in 2012, and I've been happy to be away from it since then and just enjoying judo for for what it has to offer. Why did you get started when you were seven? Well, here you go. I mean, I had no choice. <laughs> Okay. My, my brother, my father was a boxer. In fact, he was a Golden Gloves champion back in back in the day in 1939 and 1940. Before World War II, he was Golden Gloves champion, and um, but he didn't want his kids to do to do boxing because he thought it was dangerous. And so he got my two older brothers to do jujitsu, and then and then they tried, quickly went to a judo. They went to a judo club. So then my two older brothers were doing judo and it was part of the thing. It's like piano, right? You're, you're, they also did piano. And so whenever, whenever I became old enough, I had to go and do judo and do piano. And I did it from the time I, I did judo from the time I was seven. Have you ever had to use it in a real life situation? Well, it depends what you mean by it, right? I mean, I think you, one uses the principles of judo and defense and giving in in many different ways, right? Um, so I, I think on that level, sure, you, you use it every day. Um, but if you talk about physical self-defense, no, um, not in terms of fighting others, but, but um, you know, one of the things you learn from judo and, and many other martial arts, I think, is know, know, know how to avoid such situations and and know if such situations even have a chance of escalating that it's, it's better to just leave than to than to try right and certainly there have been such situations like that but i'll tell you the biggest the biggest times of self defense i can think for myself and many other people in judo is when they've fallen by themselves so either they've tripped or fallen you know kids do this all the time i know people who have ridden bikes or bicycles or things like that where they've been thrown uh, mm -hmm. and where the, the next person may get seriously injured. People who do judo oftentimes can just take a fall and stand up without being injured. And that is, to tell you the truth, the biggest self-defense chance that most people have. And I think it's huge. If you, if you look at data on falling rates from the CDC or anywhere else, I mean, falling injuries from falling and deaths from falling are a major cause of, of, of problems for youth and, and older adults. And so every, everywhere. And I think, I think uh, one of the greatest things judo does is, is that kind of self-defense. What was it like coaching your, your daughter at such a high level? Oh, well, that it's, um, that's an interesting question. I mean, um, um, 
You know, I think we got into a rhythm by which when, you know, coaching my daughter at competition is just one thing, right? I mean, it's coaching her and, and my other players every day. And when we're in the dojo and, and out the dojo, right? Because they're, they're doing, they're, they're, they're running, they're lifting, they're doing all kinds of things that we have to be on top of. And at that level, you're bringing people at, to their, to the extremes of what they can endure. And, um, uh, you know, I think we developed a, a good way early on that, that, uh, whenever we were at a training venue, whether it's the dojo or outside or wherever we are, we, we, we were no longer dad and daughter, right? We were, we were, we were coach and athlete. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, 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 I think I was able to keep that like that. And she was able to keep like that, that, like that. And we had others around us where, you know, everybody was miserable to tell you the truth, because it wouldn't be just her and she, you know, everybody's miserable together and you're more like, you're more worried about surviving than, than, you know, what your dad said or did or something like that. And then we developed a way of, of just understanding that when we left, that was it. And we were, now we were dad and daughter. And I would, I, we had a rule. I, I mean, I had a rule and I told her, I, I never talk about judo at home unless she brought it up. And I never did. And I think that helped a lot for for just keeping it in its compartment it, it, you know once i thought of when i was at home once i thought about what was going on is i felt well you know now that she's probably going to listen to this i you know i, I got to watch what i say but sometimes i felt bad about what they all did you know sometimes i mean it's 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 tough it's it's the toughest thing to to be training at that level and whether whatever regardless of what sport it is and and you're the person that brings him to that and and beyond that right because you know that's 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 what training at that level is like and so when when i thought about it it was not the easiest thing but once you're there it's it's that's just what we did because that we were able to compartmentalize it like that i think well let's go back to your phd you said you you steered away from being a clinician yep so what exactly did you decide your focus to be at that time well i to do research so, um, okay. you know, I remember this pretty clearly because throughout graduate school, of course, you, you know, you're doing research as well as doing clinical work as a beginning clinician. And I struggled. I struggled as a clinician. You know, I was coming from from just having graduated um, with my undergraduate and going straight to graduate school and doing doing clinical work. And I, to tell you the truth. Um, my family was just a normal everyday family. We didn't have too much drama. I can't remember of any drama, you know, and, and there I was 23, mm. 24 years old talking to people about their life problems and people would be older than me and dealing with their divorce or loss of their job or substance abuse and whatnot. And it was tough for me. It was tough for me. And I struggled with that. And even if I wanted to help, I didn't know how. And um, I had great supervisors who gave me a lot of, who put a lot of time and effort in me. But I think there was a limitation in me because of the lack of ex life experience. So at that time, there was also the other side, which was I was doing research and, you know, I, I was kind of good at it. And so I just kept plugging away and I felt comfortable doing research. At the same time, I was feeling increasingly uncomfortable doing clinical work. And there came a point where I was actually sitting there. I think I was writing notes of a session or something like that, where I thought, when I thought to myself, you know, I'd rather be looking at a page of data. And once I had that thought, I thought, geez, maybe I shouldn't do this anymore because, you know, I believe clinical work to be extremely hard, even when you want to do it. But if you don't want to do it, it becomes even worse. And, you know, there's, there's something that questions i question my own ethics if if you if one wants to continue to try when you don't really want to do it and you're intervening in somebody else's life mm. and so I, for that reason i thought geez you know maybe i should just make a better i better make a cleaner decision to get off get out of that and p follow this other passion which was to do research and then in 1989, you started your position at San Francisco State University. Why, why did you choose? Now, I looked at the map. It looks right across the, the water from Berkeley. Why, why did you choose San Francisco State? Well, um, I was really, really fortunate. After I, my degree in 86, I, I was able to get a, a job as a, as a professor, assistant professor at a private school in Berkeley called the Wright Institute. It's a private school that grants um, PhDs in clinical psychology at the time. 
um, I was there for three years. And while I was there, um, I was semi-recruited by a faculty member at, at San Francisco State um, to come and apply for, for a position there. At the time, the San Francisco State, like many of the California State Universities, were ramping up their 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 ability to do research and their faculty to do research. You know, there's there's a there's another thread here about the history of the of the California State University system in California. And at that time, until now, and still now, you know, many university CSUs were were basically doing were basically teaching, and the faculty basically didn't have to do too much research. Um, that that's still true in many CSUs today. It's, that's not true at San Francisco or like San Diego. But at the time, there was a time of transition, and so San Francisco State was transitioning to go from exclusively teaching to incorporating a researcher, a scholar research model for the faculty. And I was part of the, I was hired as part of the wave to kind of get that, to get that going or get, continue that, continue that movement. And so somebody who was there knew me and, or heard of me and she encouraged me to um, apply. I did. And I was fortunate to get in in 89 and I've been there ever since. And then you you started something called the Culture and Emotion Research Laboratory. Yes, yes. Um, so I had a laboratory at the Wright Institute, and one of the things that I was asked to do and I wanted to do was to continue my research, which meant that I I start up a laboratory, and I I was doing research on cross cultural research on emotion, as you know, and and so I created this laboratory called and I called it the Culture and Emotion Research Lab. And it's a laboratory that still exists today. I'm, I'm still there. My laboratory is still there at San Francisco State. All right, let's let's jump into this paper um, again. The, the The paper is called "American Japanese Cultural Differences in Judgments of Emotional Expressions of Different Intensities." Before we jump into the paper, I think I think we need to go over some some terms and a lot of these these terms that you you bring up in this paper. Uh, I I read them from your 1991 paper, again, like you said, maybe it, the thread goes before that. Uh-huh. There's this idea. One of the cool things about reading your, your work is it's, I think it's like you said, maybe it's like you uh, just talking to you now, talking about you, you, you sort of stick with something. You, you see things as a linear path. You keep working. I find your paper is very, your papers are very easy to read. Um, it's very easy to follow the story. And, and one of the, the cool things about the 1991 paper is you, you reference Darwin, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's cool to read a paper and then you're, you're reading along and there's the citation Darwin, 1872. And I just, I just get a thrill whenever there's a sort of really older citation. And you talk about how Darwin's theory of universal, universalist, well, universal expressions. Mm-hmm. And then there was the debate at that time between universalists versus cultural relativists. It's kind of hard to say. <laughs> so Darwin, at that time, was Darwin saying that there was the seven universal facial expressions uh, am i am i clear about that or did that come later well you're clear about um so darwin yeah let me back up there so because so darwin's thoughts about emotion and and and, it, and its expression were part of his theory of evolution and um as you know he published origin of species in 1859 and then the um a separate monograph the expression of emotion in man and animals in 1872 and in in that latter uh, monograph, he he suggested that uh, emotions and many many emotions and many expressions that humans have are, are are actually actually lineages evolutionary or lineages of the evolutionary history of humans from non-human animals. And so he linked the fact that people have emotions to and and expressions to what what are analogs in the emotion in the animal world as well. Um, he suggested that were, there were a number of emotions. I don't remember the exact number to tell you the truth. Um, that that were the same in humans as well as non-human animals, and that their expressions were also um, uh, the same in non-human animals. And thus, he concluded that emotions and their expressions were universal to all humans because it's it's a it's a it's a product of the evolutionary lineage. So that's what he concluded about that. Now, when when did this idea of the seven come about? So, um, that's a good question. So, the there there were early studies since Darwin's time throughout the early ni- first half of the century of the twentieth century, 
most of them were inconclusive. Then the first set of studies that, that essentially provided solid evidence for six of the seven uh, occurred in the late 1960s and early 1970s. They were led by Sylvan Tompkins and then other researchers named Paul Ekman and Cal Izzard. And together they uh, conducted what's known as the universality studies that demonstrated um, or produced pretty convincing evidence for the universal expression and recognition of six of those, anger, anger, disgust, fear, happy, sad, and surprise. The seventh one emerged. Now, 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 let's, now let, let me stop you there. Um, that's a great quiz question. So I, I would challenge the listener, don't look on Google. Um, Dr. Moto just Dr. Matsumoto just gave you the six joy, surprise, sadness, anger, disgust, fear. Without looking at Google, maybe try to think what do you think is the seventh? Because I got I got to say I was stumped. Um, I, at the top on the top before I sort of looked at at it, I wanted to sort of guess what the seven were, and I was really stumped with the seventh. So maybe some people out there push pause and try to think what do you think is the seventh? But anyway. Um, so why don't you go ahead and tell us, Dr. Matsumoto, what's the seventh? So the seventh um, universal emotion that uh, that we believe is universal is contempt. And contempt emerged as, an, as a universal expression in research in the 1980s and early, and early 1990s. And um, I remember this pretty, pretty clearly. I mean, um, Ekman, in one of his studies, uh, back in the, geez, I think it was in the in the mid-1980s where he collected data from a number of different countries slash cultures, and he included expressions that he thought would be culture-specific. That is, one culture would think it's contemptuous and others would not. And what he found, uh, or he and his colleagues, uh, Wally Friesman, found was that the the expression that we know of as, as contempt today was also judged reliably as contempt in a number of different countries. So then they re replicated that effect in 1988 with Carl Heider in um, a couple of um, tribes in New Guinea. And then I replicated that effect several times after that with several other countries and cultures in the early 1990s. And so the, 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 the evidence then mounted for the universal recognition of that particular expression. And thus, uh, and, th and those are the only seven uh, emotions that we believe, that I believe, uh, have the adequate evidence in research data to be universally produced and ex expressed and recognized in the face. So those are the universal emotions that are, that, are, that have, uh, the emotions that have universal facial expressions. Now, so I, yeah, I'm, I, I guess when I was thinking about this question about the seven, I was trying to apply what, what, what could a baby produce? And that's why I was stuck with contempt. Yeah. I'm still a little bit stuck on that. What exactly does that mean? And can a baby produce that facial expression? Actually, yeah, actually, yes. Um, well, let me clarify that. I have seen babies produce that expression in situations in which you would expect something like that. Now, contempt is a pretty um, sophisticated linguistic term, right? I mean, that a lot of people, in yeah. fact, a lot of people don't under, don't even know what that is. And, and semantically, it overlaps with disgust or anger. Um, but if you understand each emo, each emotion and each expression on its elemental basis. So for example, ang anger, one can understand anger as on its elemental basis as being triggered by goal obstruction. And so if we think about goal obstruction, we can see how, how that is, that produces anger, right? Or disgust, disgust brings about, uh, contamination brings about disgust. Hmm. And with contempt, when we think about contempt, whatever we want to call that, whether we call it contempt or not, it's brought about by something or someone that one believes is beneath one. You know, so it's a threat to one's self, self-worth, let's say. Hmm. And for that reason, babies, here's another, you know, evolutionary story, right? At some point, babies develop the, 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 the cognitive capacity to understand that one self, one, that one, there is a self and there is a worth to that self. You know? hmm. And it may be later developmentally, it is later developmentally than the other six emotion expressions. However, once that occurs, you know, the development of self in, in humans is a universal thing. And once humans, humans develop self, humans also develop what's called a self-worth. And because we have the capability to, to evaluate things rel relative to our self-worth, we can, we can then evaluate things as being above or below or commensurate with our self-worth. 
And when we believe, when we have that kind of trigger, that can trigger that emotion of what we call contempt. Understanding it on that elemental level, yes, I've actually seen the expression occur in infants um, in those kinds of situations, which I, which I could, um, which one could interpret like that. Although I must say, I, I've never seen um, develop evidence in a developmental study of infants that produce contempt. So what I'm, what I was just told you was all my anecdotal evidence, not something that I've actually seen in a research article. Well, there's another study that you did tying into judo. Now, if, if I'm incorrect about the details, you can let me know. Did you do a study measuring emotions of blind judo athletes? Yes. Yes. That was a study that I did off the, um, the athletes in the Paralympic games in the 2004, uh, in the 2004 Paralympic games. And that was subsequent to a very similar study I did with the, with the sighted athletes of the 2004 Athens games. So we, we, we coded all of the expressions of the medal, the winners and losers of the medal rounds in the Athens mm-hmm. Olympic Games, we, we know exactly what their faces did right at the moment they won and lost and what they did on the podium. And then two weeks later, um, we did the same study with the, Paralympic game, with the Paralympic athletes. And for judo, it's blindness. And we coded their faces the, of the medalists, the, the winners and losers of the medal rounds of the, of the Paralympic Games. We coded their facial muscle movements as well. And, and we demonstrated that the, the blind individuals were producing the same expressions. In fact, the correlation in the facial muscle, the uh, behavior between the blind and the sighted athletes was something like 0.92 or 0.94. It was astronomical. So that means that that's built into us and it's not learned. Uh, it's, not, it's not a learned expression. Yes, that's how I interpret that data. I mean, there, there's no way. I mean, a number of those athletes were congenitally blind. There's no way that they could have learned that from birth. That coincides with other studies of congenitally blind individuals who produce, spontaneously produce the same expressions as sighted individuals do. And so, uh, so I believe that means that, that we humans are all born with the capability of producing those expressions when those emotion, same emotions are triggered. Now, that, okay, that, okay, yeah, sorry, go ahead. That refers to a biological capability, right? I mean, we're all we're all humans, and we all become socialized and enculturated, and so we all learn different rules about how to use that same capability. So, like when you're in Japan, you're talking to about those kids; they're feeling they're, they're, these kids who are maybe feeling unpleasant or anxious, and they they they'll have that feeling. But we can all learn the rule of overrun. Um, uh, of controlling our expressions in that situation, whereas people in another culture will learn a different rule about how to deal with that particular emotion. Okay, so that that sort of builds the the, the listener to the, the paper again. The paper is American Japanese cultural differences in judgments of emotional expressions of different intensities. So what what we've just outlined is that there's these these seven uh, expressions of emotions that are that are universal, and I guess the point of this paper is is was your 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 hypothesis or your motiv- hypothesis or your motivation going to the paper was it that okay Americans and Japanese share these emotions except Japanese are culturally cha- are culturally trained to sort of repress or keep some emotions from coming to the surface was that the aim of the paper well actually it's, it's sort of related to that I mean um, there there are two big aims to this paper one was to replicate a finding that we had um, produced a few years earlier. And in that, and it, so this replicated in this paper as well. But one one of the things was is that when Americans saw uh, most research until this point was using used high intensity expressions, you know, very big, very full face, very intense expressions, where it's pretty clear what was going on. And when American and Japanese, when American people or American and Japanese see those expressions, those high intensity expressions, what we found was that. The Japanese thought that the people were expressing it, expressing the emotion at the same level they were ex- feeling it, but that the Americans were, exe- were said that they were expressing it more than they were feeling it. And in that previous study, we also showed low intensity expressions. So what happened there was the Americans thought, oh, with the low intensity expression, people are feeling it about the same to the same amount that they're showing it. But the Japanese all actually um, um, reported that 
they thought that people who were giving low intensity expressions were actually feeling it more intensely. So there's a difference in how people were interpreting these expressions. And I wanted to replicate that. And one of the important reasons why that, one of the reasons why that was important for me was previous research on the American Japanese differences were all saying that it was because the Japanese were suppressing their feelings, their emotions, their judgments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that previous study was showed, no, 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 it's not necessarily the Japanese that are suppressing, it's the Americans that are exaggerating, at least for the high intensity expressions. And so, interesting. yeah, it was a, it's a way of, uh, it's a different way of interpreting the data, right? I mean, even I was very American centric in, in interpreting the previous data because I used to say, oh, the Japanese have lower ratings. That's the, it must be because they're suppressing. When I did not think it could be, it might've been because the Americans were just exaggerating. So the previous study showed that it was the Americans that were exaggerating these these ratings on high intensity expression. So I so I wanted to replicate that number one here, and then I wanted to find out what was the cultural source of that, and that's why we incorporated the measures of individualism and status status differentiation. Okay, why did you choose? So this was a partnership with Nihon University. Yes. Why did you choose that university? Well, I mean, like most research, it's not choosing the university; it's choosing choosing a, a collaborator, right? And Okay. I knew Professor Yamada for several years prior to that. We had struck up a relationship. He had come to my laboratory. He spent. Uh, he he actually came to NASA Ames as a as a visiting scholar there for a year. And while he was there, he came to my laboratory, and we knew each other in our work beforehand. And then we struck up a, a relationship, and then we struck up a research collaboration, and um, and uh, basically we we became friends as well as collaborators. And and that's how that you know it's it's. It's the person, not the university, to tell you the truth. There are nothing wrong with the university, but um, you know, Professor Yamada and I were, were very good friends. Okay, so the the study you you had, I'm just reading from your 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 paper um, to make three judgments of each picture. So you showed participants pictures. Yep. You had them make three judgments of each picture: a categorical emo- emotion judgment, an intensity ratings of the external display of the expression and the presumed internal experience of the poser. Um, that, that, that was the setup of, of the data collection. Yeah. Um, so did you, use, did you use the seven uh, universal emotions for this? I think in this particular exper- uh, experiment, we use a subset of them because the, um, the, the expressions were manipulated to produce the high and low versions by... Essentially, today we could Photoshop it, but at, back in the day we didn't Photoshop that. So what did we? It was angry, happy, sad, and surprised expressions. So there were, we used four of the seven. So in your in your table here on I don't know if you have the paper up, but for people listening on page seven thirty four, you you have the table. Yep. Um, and so I I guess I'm a little bit confused. I should have asked you this before. Um, you have the emotion on one on one column, then you have poser. Um, and you have one, two, three, four. Yep. So does that, are you talking about the neutral, low, high, very high? Is that what you mean by poser of those four? No, there was, there were, there, there are different people, different people expressing a neutral, a low, a high, and a very high expression. The, the, uh, so can you, can you explain that? Why did you, why did you decide to use different, different people? Oh, because if you only use one person in a study, you don't know whether, whether what you get is limited to that person or not. And so to make sure okay. that your findings can generalize across people, you want to have multiple posers or expressors. Okay, so in, in this data, a, f- a few things lined up. Um, I, I was curious about where, where, uh, where participants marked zero or 100. And those, those aligned a few times. Um, what, what, what were you most surprised by? I mean, I guess the findings you, you already mentioned. Um, but what, what were you most surprised by when you were when you were first looking at the data when it first all kind of came through? Like you said, you like looking at the data. Yeah. What, was there anything that kind of struck you? Because um, it seems like some of this stuff aligned with your 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 hypothesis. Yeah, no, I mean, today, you're you're exactly right. I mean, to tell you the truth, the data in Table One, um, we've obtained similar types of data for at, at that time, probably you know a decade and a half of research of our own. And then there's the previous research that other my people before me have done. And so these percentages, especially for the high and very high expressions, are not a surprise. They were, mm-hmm. they were, they were what we always get. 
But the, when you get to the part about, again, replicating the previous finding about the differences between the high and the low intensity expressions and how the Americans and Japanese were interpreting them, I think that was really cool to see because I, you know, you never, you never, you never want to put a lot of credence into a single single finding, right? Once you see it replicated more than once in different methodologies, then you start to believe that there's some kind of phenomenon there. And I think that's that's when I started to think that there's something interesting there. And that it's basically it's in table two. So table two is when you get into the 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 more in depth analysis. And I got to be honest, this this the, the 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 math here, I'm I'm not great at this. This is this is tough for me to see. Mm. I'm better with table one. <laughs> <laughs> so you were using an ANOVA. Yeah, yeah. Calculation. We get into the statistic. We use the the, the main effect. The main analyses use ANOVA. Then the the stuff with the R square effect size and the R square effect size after the covariance. Um, they, we use analysis covariance, and then the last three columns use regressions. I mean, so it's it's all kinds of fancy statistics where, you know, people like me wave our wave our statistics wand and hopefully get something that we want. But let me, I mean, really quickly, I can just tell you if you look at USA, the third row, which is high expression intensity, it says external delay, the display was one point three seven, and the attributed internal experience is 0.55. Basically, that's saying that. The Americans looked at high intensity expressions and they thought that they were exp expressing it more than they were feeling it. Mm. That's what that says. Whereas in the so there's for Japan, if you look at low, so these are mm. negatives, right? Because these are Z scores. Um, when the Japanese were seeing the low low intensity expressions, they thought that the people of the low intensity expressions felt it more than they were expressing it. That's what that low means. Right. So the Americans were looking at the picture, this this high intensity expression, and they're saying, "Oh, the person's just acting." They were told to make that face, Some, and then yeah. the and then the Japanese were saying, "Oh, well, like so." So if a Japanese person sees a low intensity anger expression, they interpret that as, "Oh, that person's actually hiding how angry they actually are." Yes, <laughs> something like that. This is a very interesting study because when I when I first sort of read it, I I sort of took it I took some of the 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 things you wrote about at, at face value, where uh, as far as the the way Japanese do not emote um, as strongly as Americans do, but that's not actually the core of the paper. Now that I've read it a few more times, yeah. there's this third there's this third layer, to and, and it goes back to another one of the these these uh these terms you mentioned in the 1991 paper where you're talking about. Again, universalism versus cultural relativists. Uh, you talk about recognition and expression. You also talk about emotional perception. Yep. So th there's all these sort of factors, these underlying factors here, which actually makes it a very complex study and, and not sort of just face value. You're looking at something a bit, a bit deeper. Was this, was this your idea to think of that sort of that third layer of how is the other person actually feeling? Yes. Yeah, I wanted to figure that out because, um, well, that is related to the ninety-one stuff because you know ninety-one stuff is all about display rules, right? And so when you when you um, apply the concept of display rules to perception, it forces one to think that you should separate the ratings of the external display um, compared to the attributed internal experience because that's what a display rule is, right? And so we're trying to get at those display rules and these kinds of ratings. All right, we only have a, a few more minutes left, so I, I want to ask you a, a few questions about the FBI. So, sure. <laughs> in two thousand in two thousand nine, um, this is a, this is on your Wikipedia page, so I don't know if this is correct. You you won you won a grant uh, called the Minerva Award, uh, which was awarded by the Department of Defense. It said it was for one point nine million dollars. Yeah. Um, what what led to that uh, that 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 grant? Well, you. Um... So there's a, there's a story there too, like everything else, right? Um, after 9/11, um, I devoted a substantial amount of my time, as I do right now, to working for issues of law enforcement and national security. And uh, I had been working in um, applying the, re the findings from this research field to helping individuals be able to better interpret the be nonverbal behavior of, of others in various kinds of situations like interviews and interrogations or various kinds of things like that. So in my travels and in my work in that, in that, my, that particular area, I, I came to know many different um, government agencies and program managers who, who, 
who manage research portfolios. And one of them, uh, one of the uh, people I met ha happened to be involved in the initial, uh, the, the standing up the, of the Minerva program, which was a program by the Office of the Secretary of Defense to start uh, to, to get um, more basic science research from universities uh, that, that could, could um, impact on national security issues. I was very fortunate to be awarded one of the first or one of the first five uh, grants in that particular area. That, that particular project examined the emotions underlying the, um, uh, underlying the motivations of ideologically motivated political aggression. And so I, I, we conducted, my colleagues and I conducted a five-year project trying to explain or uncover what those emotional bases of that kind of motivation would be. And so, and you know, again, it took five years. We produced a number of papers. It's all about um, certain, a certain set of those emotions that we've been talking about. And I happen to believe that those, that set of emotions is, um, is consistent across time, culture, and period. It, it, I believe it, it, it leads, it, understanding what those, that emotional uh, combination is can help us understand the motivation for political aggression against other groups. Is, is that why you started Humantel? Around that time, so that and part of the other, I mean, the 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 major work that I was doing for the um, for in this area allowed me or required me to do not only research but also consulting and training and doing other kinds of things. Um, and yeah, I had to create a mechanism to to a vehicle to allow for that kind of work to occur. And uh, I I was actually running. Uh, I was involved with another vehicle, such vehicle, from around two thousand and three or four to six or seven or eight. And then, yes, I branched off and created my own, which is Humantel in 2009 and have been working in Humantel ever since. How, how do you have time for all this stuff? I mean, uh, it, it, it says you're, you're a member of the High Value Detainee Interrogation Group Research Committee, Behavioral Informatics and Technological Enterprise Studies Behavioral Science Unit, former instructor of the National Academy of the FBI. Advisory Board, Center for Interviewer Standards and Assessment, Certified Forensic Interviewing. What, what, how, do you, how do you have time for all this? Well, you know what? I, I, I got to tell you, it goes back to that same thing I, we started off with. I, I think it's because I've done judo, and judo has given me the um, discipline and work ethic to just stick with it and get things done. And, well, you know, uh, there's a big time management thing, right? Because um, normally I got to, not right now because we all, we all have to be sheltered in place here, but normally every evening I'm going to judo. And so I got to get stuff done before I got to go because, because, because that's, it's time certain that I guess just got to be on the mat. And that kind of structures my day that's, that has structured my day for, for the last half century. So, you yeah. know, having to, having that time, certain deadline every day kind of helped me motivate me to get things done, I think. Okay, I guess this is the the last question. I, I I'm wondering if you've ever done consulting or advising to business negotiations. I just imagine like a business, like a, a boardroom where you have you know two sides on either side, and then you can set up a camera through one of the walls. <laughs> I guess that would be illegal, of course, but uh, you would be able to analyze the emotions of the the counterpart of the negotiation to try to figure out if the person's lying or if there's leeway where you can negotiate more. Was there was there ever sort of this idea that this could Go into the business world. Well, I think that's a very common idea in the business world, to tell you the truth. And yes, we uh, get approached about doing things in that domain quite often. Right. Okay. Well, this this is this is fascinating. I I like I said I I try I want to keep it to an hour, but there's there's so much uh, you could do an interview on on any one of these subjects. I I tried I tried to hit them all. And I, like you said, it's, this is a good time to schedule an interview because everyone's sort of locked away. It's a good time to start a podcast. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I could take advantage of people being uh, stuck in their homes. But again, it's, um, so it's, it's, it's Dr. David Matsumoto. Um, the, the article is American Japanese cultural differences and judgments of emotional expressions of, of different intensities. If people want to contact you, can I, um, should I put your, your email in the show notes or should I direct them to your website? What's the, if someone has any follow-up questions, are you open to receiving some questions from people? Yeah, of course. I mean, email email is fine. Um, links are fine uh, to either my personal website or my company website, actually. And um, either way, some something will get to, to me and we'll, we'll always follow up. All right. Well, um, again, it's uh, Dr. David Matsumoto at San Francisco State University.
Stay safe, Dr. Matsumoto, and, and thanks again for coming on Lost in Citations. You too. Thank you for having me. You take care. Thank you again for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email, lostincitations at gmail.com. Please like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash lostincitations. It also helps greatly if you share the show on your social media platform of choice. And if you're feeling extra generous, please leave us a five-star rating and favorable review on iTunes. This will help us tremendously. One final thing, and maybe most important, if you enjoy listening to the show, please tell a friend or colleague. People often talk about their favorite podcasts, so let people know that you're listening. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week.